It's good to be here. I hope you're glad to be here this morning. We've enjoyed time of fellowship, worship. Now we want to study the Word of the Lord together. Hope you brought your Bible, because here at San Ramon Valley Bible Church, this is what we do. We study the Bible. And so we're going to turn, first of all, to the book of Galatians. I'm going to read a verse in Galatians chapter 3. Then we're going to the Old Testament. Now, the choir didn't know, I don't think, what I'm going to preach about this morning, where our study is. But the Lord did. The Holy Spirit did. And that's what I love about the Lord, how He can direct things. Best director, best program director there ever was. The Holy Spirit. We should really be grateful to Him for what He does. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now come with me, please, to the book of Deuteronomy. Book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 21. Verses 22 and 23, the last two verses of the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy. And the word of the Lord says, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged, is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we come this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus. We bow our heads and our hearts in your most holy presence. We thank you for the opportunity we have to meet together. And as we come to your word, we realize that we have an opportunity before us this morning to allow you to speak to us through your word. And we come to hear your voice, not a human voice. We come to learn from the word of God, not to see a performance, not to be entertained. But that you might speak to our hearts, as the Lord said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. And so we pray they will, that your word will find a place in our hearts and lives today. And that as we go out of this place, we will be able to say, today the Lord was with us. Today the Lord met with us and spoke to my heart. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to think with you today about the law of the cross. The law of the cross not one of the laws they study in law school. They study in law school and, and without having to go to law school, all sorts of laws, laws of physics, laws of mathematics, and then there are, of course, human laws, laws made by politicians, laws made by courts, laws made by lawyers, laws made by kings. 
But there are laws in the Bible that people who are experts in every other kind of law know nothing about. And this is one of them. In fact, I I would even go so far as to say that this is a law that many people who call themselves Christians might be unaware of. The law of the cross. We read in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13, about that law. It's quoted in the New Testament. But few people realize the setting in the Old Testament where that law is found. And that's what we want to think about for a few minutes together this morning. The law of the cross. What about the law of sin and death? Do they study that in law school? Maybe I should remind you of it before we go into our text a little further. In Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, the word law comes up quite a bit. And in Romans chapter 7 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin." Come down to chapter 8 and verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now there's a few laws to go and study. And we'll come to those. I'm not going to dwell on those this morning, but we'll come to them by way of reference as we look at the law of the cross. The cross is not something that was established by the Romans. The idea of of a person killed and hung on a tree and left on a post or a tree for people to see is not something that was invented by the Romans or people in their time. It goes back, as you can see here, to the book of Deuteronomy, way back into the times of the Old Testament, way back into Moses' time. As far back as then, the practice of a person being killed and hung on a tree is stated for us here in verse 22. If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. That's not the Romans. We might say the Romans perfected the use of the cross as an instrument of execution. But the principle of someone being hung publicly on a tree or a post or a cross goes way back into the Old Testament. And God here explains this law to his people. He established this law for the nation of Israel. And so the Jews knew from time immemorial, they knew more about the cross and the law of the cross than the Romans ever did. Let's go through it. What is the law of the cross? It's not very long, so it's not very difficult to understand. We want to look at the law itself and understand it. And then we want to go and see how it was applied in the Old Testament. Are there any cases in the Old Testament where this law, in these two verses, 
is it, we see it illustrated in it or applied. Are there any cases where this actually took place, where they did something like this? And then we want to come to the New Testament and think about the fulfillment of the law of the cross. So first of all, let's dwell for a few minutes on exactly what the wording here is saying to us. In order for this law to be carried out, first of all, there had to be an offense. And not just any offense. He says, if any man have committed, or if a man have committed a sin worthy of death. And there you have, in the same verse and in the same phrase right there in the Old Testament, two words that people are still struggling to put together in their minds today in our time. Sin and death. And that's a concept that is hammered in and repeated over and over again in the Old and New Testament. Sin and death, and it goes way back to the book of Genesis, doesn't it? What did the Lord say to them? And He put them in the garden and He gave them all those wonderful blessings in the Garden of Eden. And He said, Of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, that is not an unfair restriction. He let them eat of every tree except one tree. Every tree in the garden. And there were a lot of trees in the garden. And the scripture tells us when you go back and read in Genesis about that creation in the garden. And he tells us how the trees were and that they were pleasant to look at. And the fruit of them was good to eat. And the Lord said, here you have it. I put you in the midst of a garden. Look how pleasing, how pleasant it is to see all of this. And to be able to take it in. There's one tree I don't want you to eat. And that tree became the tree of conflict. The day you eat of it, you will die. Sin and death have forever been linked in the scriptures, and they always will be. And that's why death is in the world today. Because there is sin in the world. And when sin came into the world, death came into the world. And I can assure you on the authority of the Word of God that modern man with all of his science and genetic engineering and all of his medical uh, knowledge and expertise is never going to take away death. Because death is caused by sin. Death came into the world by sin. And Romans chapter 5 affirms that for us. But we want to come back to the problem we have here in verse 22. We have a person who's committed a sin worthy of death. And what sins were worthy of death? Well, not spitting on the sidewalk. We didn't have sidewalks anyway. What sins were worthy of death? Well, we have one before us in the previous verses. Verse 18, If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father, nor the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastised him or chastened him, will not hearken to them, then shall his father and mother lay hold on him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his place, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. 
so you shall put away the evil from among you. There's one example how serious God considers the sin of disobedience and disrespect. Now, as we move along, let's go, in fact, let's go back uh, to the book of Leviticus and read in chapter 20 of the book of Leviticus some other sins that were named that way. Because when the Lord says this to them in Deuteronomy chapter 21, he's talking to them after having established a set of laws and commandments for them to follow. And they knew they were informed and it was written down. And the words of God that were written were read to the congregation every year and people knew what was expected of them. And it says in chapter 20 of the book of Leviticus, verse 2, Again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, whoever, whosoever he be of the children of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that giveth any of his seed to Molech, he shall be surely put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given of his seed to Molech. That was an idol. And they actually sacrificed their children. Sometimes they dedicated them and sometimes they outright sacrificed them to these idols. And that was strictly forbidden by God. When you come down to verse 9. He says, for everyone that curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. Look at verse 10. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And as you go down uh, through the... Verses of chapter 20, you find law after law and commandment after commandment of the Lord in which he warned the people explicitly, specifically about things that they were not to do, sins that were not to be committed, sins that held with them the death penalty, that drew the death penalty. And so when he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 21, coming back to our text, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, those had been clearly established by God in his word. And that was known by the people. So we have a sin worthy of death. And it is always God's prerogative to judge sin. Because God is holy. He's pure. He's undefiled. He's perfect. And sin is exactly the opposite of that. Because God is righteous, correct, and upright in all that he does. And sin is the opposite of that. And that is exactly why in the New Testament when we read in the book of Revelation uh, about heaven, it says, there shall, neither shall thou enter, enter into it anything that defiles. Nothing that is defiling can enter into the eternal dwelling place of God. Everything that is contrary to his nature will be excluded eternally, forever, from heaven. It's not a matter of making a rule. It's a matter of an impossibility. Those things cannot exist in the presence of God. And so God judges sin. And he says, sin worthy of death must be judged. So he says, if a man commit a sin, have committed a sin worthy of death, second step, and he be to be put to death. You have him there. To put him to death. 
Because that's what they were supposed to do. They weren't supposed to wait for God to do it. It was their responsibility to carry it out. And that's what we call capital punishment. And the history of capital punishment in the scriptures goes way back to chapter 9 of the book of Genesis. Maybe we should just read that together. Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood. God blessed Noah, verse 1, and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb I have given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, you shall not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. And at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheds man's blood, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For, the, for in the image of God made he man. Right there in the new world established by God after the flood, we see, uh, among other things, well, we see there the principle of human government that God called upon Noah and his sons to govern, and he would require life, the life of a person whose life was taken, he would require that at the hand of the person who had taken it, or at the hand of the animal, or the he would require to the animal that had taken it. And he says, whoever takes man's life, whoever sheds man's blood, by man, not by God, by man shall his blood be shed. And that was the law that God established way back in the book of Genesis, and that law is still being carried out in the book of Deuteronomy. When we come to chapter 21 and verse 22, he says, And he be to be put to death. Who put him to death? We saw it in the book of Leviticus, and we see it here. It was the responsibility of the people to carry that out. Not the mob. We're not talking about mob rule here. We're not talking about lynch mobs and kangaroo courts and that sort of thing. We're talking about a legal process in which it was established, first of all, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, what had been done, not by hearsay. And then, once the offense had been established, and it was verified that it had indeed been committed by this person, then they had to carry out the sentence. And the sentence was dictated by God. It was already on the books. And he be to be put to death. So they had to carry out God's sentence because they didn't decide it. And they couldn't say, well, who are we to judge? They didn't need to say that because they didn't really have to judge it. God had already judged it. God had already established what was the offense and what was the punishment. And they were required as stewards of God to carry it out. And so, he says, and if he be... To be put to death. You have him there to put him to death. Or you put him to death. Then what do you do next with him? He says, and you hang him on a tree. 
Now, why would they do that? First of all, you have a person who's committed a crime, a sin worthy of death. Secondly, they carry out, they execute the sentence. And then third, this body, they take it and they hang it on a tree. So that everyone can see it. Similar, perhaps, in some ways, to what used to be the public executions, the public hangings and that sort of thing. People used to do that in Europe and in the early years of the United States. Whenever there was an execution, either carried on by the church in the Auto de Fe in Spain or in other countries in Europe, or if it was an execution of spies or some other kind of criminal carried out by the government. Well, at any rate, however they did it, they would go to the plaza and they would pronounce the judgment there in front of the, the town square in front of everybody and people would come and they would bring their chairs and sometimes they would set up uh, seats kind of like stands for people to sit in and the hawkers would come and begin to sell their goods, their wares and people would sell food and they would sell toys for the children to play with and it was an outing. Like people here to uh, go on picnics on Memorial Day and the 4th of July and Labor Day. And everybody's together in the park. Well, there they say, oh, we're going to have a hanging on Labor Day in the square. And everybody went and they took their sandwiches. They didn't have uh, tailgate parties because they didn't have cars for that back then. But that was the activity. And everybody went and witnessed it. This is what happens to people who break the law. And when that person was hung on a tree... The purpose of it was to make a public exposition, to make a public statement to remind and to warn all who passed by of the seriousness of the offense and that there is certain judgment for sin that is worthy of death. And there they hung. So you have a crime, a sin that is worthy of death. You have the execution of that sentence and then you have Finally, the the display. The person is left on display for all to see for the warning and the instruction of everyone. And he says then, uh, verse 23, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree. They had to take the person down and bury him. He said, He that is hanged is accursed of God. But you take him down by sundown and give him a decent burial. Because if you leave them on the, hanging on the tree overnight, what happens? Oh, the animals come. And then in the morning you have what's left. Blood and guts and everything all over the ground around it. And pieces of the body missing. Should have been given a decent burial. That was defiling, contaminating, polluting, corrupting. To the land, he said, that your land be not defiled, which the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So he was to be hung, but then he was to be taken down and given a decent burial. That's simply the law of the cross out of the Old Testament. That's how it was carried out. Well, I say it was carried out. Can you think of any instance when it was carried out? Because the question is, if God gave them this instruction, what did they do with it? Was this ever really done? Well, it was done. And I want you to look with me now at all the cases I have found. Maybe you can find another one. But I've looked and these are the only ones I can find where this law was carried out. Joshua chapter 8. 
We're going to look at the application of the law now. Joshua chapter 8. Now the children of Israel are coming into the promised land. And they've won the battle of Jericho. Just like the old song says, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. He wasn't the only one. They all fought. And so then they move on. The next town is Ai. And and they have difficulty. We don't want to spend all of our time on this chapter. They have difficulty taking the, the city. It should have been easy after Jericho. But there was sin in Israel that had to be judged first. Someone broke one of God's commands. And that sin had to be judged And then when that sin was judged and put away, then the people of Israel, the children of Israel, could move forward and conquer. And they did. And in verse 29, we read this. Well, let's start at verse 26. For Joshua drew not his hand back wherewith he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took for a prey unto themselves according to the word of the Lord which he commanded Joshua. And Joshua burnt Ai and made it a heap forever, even a desolation unto this day. And the king of Ai, he burned or he hanged on a tree until eventide. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city and raise thereon a great heap of stones that remains to this day. There's the first application of the law of the cross. And isn't it interesting that the person to whom it was applied was not even an Israelite? Now that doesn't mean it was never applied to anyone else. I want you I don't want you to misunderstand this. There are a lot of things that happened in day to day life and year by year in Israel that we don't know about. The Bible doesn't give us a journal of everything that happened every single day all through the years. The Holy Spirit chooses things to highlight, to bring out for our teaching, for our instruction, for our warning, for our edification. And God has chosen from history, from that sacred history, all of the things that we need to know. So we don't know all the other cases when it was applied. But the first case we know where the law of the cross was applied, we have right here in Joshua chapter 8, and it was with a king. A king. They hung a king. And why would they hang a king and not everybody? Well, I suppose because it would have been a lot of work to hang everybody on on crosses, although the Romans did it when they conquered cities, and other conquering nations did it. But the the Jews here took this man who had uh, turned his city, uh, closed the city gates, and turned his city against Israel, and had stayed firm in his idolatry, And in his rejection of God and of the people of God, he wasn't like Rahab in Jericho who believed and was saved. He turned against everything that Israel stood for and the God of Israel. And he fought them to the death. So they took the king because he represented the rebellious people of Ai. He was their governor. He was their leader. He was their representative. And as a representative of those people, he hung there. On that tree outside of Ai until the sun went down. And they applied the law of the cross to him. He had committed a sin worthy of death. 
he was put to death, and he was hung there until the sun went down, and it says, and then they took his body down and they cast it at the, the entering of the city, the gate of the city, what was left of the gate of the city, and they took the stones, probably the stones of the walls and the houses of the city and what had been burnt and torn down, and they piled them up there, and that became his grave. That's one. Any more? Let's go forward. Joshua chapter 10. Now in Joshua chapter 10, the war continues, the invasion and the conquering of the land. Conquering the land, be careful now, don't, don't be a revisionist of history. Conquering the land and taking the land because God had given it to them and commanded them to do this. This is not a political thing. This is not a socioeconomic thing. This is not a military thing. This is something that God commanded them to do. He brought that people up out of Egypt. He led them divinely, miraculously, and he told them to go in and possess the land that he had given generations before, 400 years before, more than 400 years before. He swore an oath to Abraham and said, I'm giving to you this land. Well, that time had come. The war continues. The people of the land are resisting. And now we see in verse 5, it's the five kings of the Amorites. Amorites were people that inhabited that area of the world before the children of Israel. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. That was because the men of Gibeon had made a treaty, had made a peace treaty with Israel to serve Israel, and so they were under Israel's protection. That's another story. But at any rate, they went and attacked these people as a sort of reprisal against them for the alliance that they had made. And so now Joshua and the children of Israel come to the rescue of the men of Gibeon, of the city of Gibeon. And we read about the battle here, verse uh, 11. It came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down of Beth Haran, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them, to Azekah, and they died, and were more which died from the hailstones than they who the children of Israel slew with the sword. Verse 16. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. Now there's a fine example of leadership for you. <laughs> Every man for himself, women and children last. And those kings booked it out of there, and they hid in a cave. They're in a cave in Makeda. Ah, but, verse 17, it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. Well, in those days, they didn't have any way to hermetically seal anything. But this is as close as you come to hermetically sealing it. They weren't getting out of that cave, and there wasn't any back door. So the stones are over it and the men are set by it. And he says, now go and pursue the rest of the enemies in the battlefield. Just leave the kings there. We've got them locked up. And go and finish the battle before these retreating armies can get back into their walled cities where they will only strengthen themselves and come out and give us trouble again. You got them on the battlefield. You got them on the run. They're not in their cities. Go and get them and finish them off. 
and then we'll come back and deal with the kings. And that's what they did. So we come down to verse 24. It came to pass that they brought out those kings unto Joshua. And Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near and put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. The five kings of the Amorites. Verse 23, the king of Jerusalem hung on a tree. Killed and hung on a tree. The king of Hebron killed and hung on a tree. The king of Jarmuth hung, killed and hung on a tree. The king of Lachish and the king of Eglon, five kings killed as representatives of a rebellious and warring people who sought to exterminate the people of God, who resisted God's command. And those people were taken, idolatrous kings. And if you know anything about the history of life in that part of the world at that time, you know anything about the idolatrous practices and the way they were. When they came out, the children of Israel came out, the cup of iniquity of the people who lived in the land of Canaan was full, God said. It was at its limit. And so those five men, as representatives of those people, were taken, killed, and hung on a tree. Five trees. Five crosses. Not three on a hill. Not one on a hill. But five. By the caves of Makeda. Five kings hanging on five crosses. Plus one king hanging on a cross in Ai. Makes You're good at math, aren't you? Well, that's not math, it's arithmetic, I guess they say. And you know what? That's all the people you can find in the Old Testament who were killed and hung on a tree. And they're all kings. Every last one of them. Isn't that something? Every last one of them. That's the law of the cross. Illustrated for us. We have it given to us in Deuteronomy 21, and then we have it illustrated in Joshua chapter 8 and Joshua chapter 10. But it's not done. It's not over yet. Because when you come to the New Testament and you read in Galatians where we began, the law of the cross is brought over in a certain way into the New Testament. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That quote, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, is a quote taken from Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. That's where that quote comes from. He's taken the law of the cross in the Old Testament and bringing it into the New Testament. Cursed of God. He who is hung on a tree is accursed of God. Cursed of God is everyone who hangs on a tree. And those five kings plus the king of Ai, those men hung on a tree represented the people that followed them. All of them represented in those kings. Killed and hung on a tree for their rebellion. 
But when we come to the New Testament, the story is different. Oh, yes, the story is so different. In the New Testament, we have a people who rebel against God. We have people who do not keep God's laws. People who do not please God, who do not live to please God. People who do not love God. People who do not serve God. People who commit sin. When God says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And in the New Testament, there is someone, a seventh king, who is hung on a tree to represent, to substitute for, in this case, all of those people who commit all of those sins. And I want you to think with me for a few minutes now about the New Testament application of the law of the cross. But we're going to take it from the words of the Old Testament. If there is someone who has committed a sin worthy of death, did Jesus Christ commit a sin worthy of death? What did Pilate say? I find no fault in him. He has done nothing deserving of death. It wasn't him. The people who committed the sin worthy of death are us. And don't hide in the crowd. Say, it was me. It was me. Romans 1, 32. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. Who's he talking about when he says that? Romans chapter 1 is describing us. It says in verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was fitting. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled, and when he says filled, that word there is a word we use to say packed down, pressed in, 
compressed, compacted so that nothing else would fit in, not even one more grain, not one more flake, not one more drop. It's as concentrated as it can possibly be. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They not only do them, but they're entertained by watching people do them. They're entertained by it. They like to go to the theater and watch it. Being portrayed in the theater. In those days they didn't have a screen. But today they have it in the theater and on the screen as well. And now you can even get it on some versions of cell phones, they tell me. Anything you want. Any movie you want. Entertained by sin. The law of the cross said in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death. And in the New Testament, we read about all of these things in Romans chapter 1. Romans is God's law book in the New Testament where the law of God and where the laws like the law of sin and death are established for us, where the justice and the righteousness of God are exposed and explained for us so that we can understand. What is wrong with our relationship with God and how that can be corrected and how we can enter into peace with God? Oh, it is so hard to come to that place like that story I told you before. My friend who taught his children to pray every night before they went to bed. You remember it. Some some who are here today weren't here, so I'm going to repeat it. Every night, teach me that I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. And he had three children, and two of them didn't seem to mind very much praying it. And uh, But one of them was, uh, people are this way, one was always a little more <clears throat> strong will, independent, whatever. And when he got his turn to pray, he would always pray this way. Oh, thank you, Lord, for taking care of us today. Thank you for our home. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my clothes. Thank you for my bike. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. So on and so forth. Wouldn't come to the point. Pretty soon his father would elbow him and say, go on and say it. He let him go for a while to see if he would get there, but he wasn't getting there. So he said, go on and say it. A silence, a deep breath, and then he would say, Teach me that I'm a sinner. Jesus died for the cross. Amen. Like, yeah. Spit it out of your mouth. Like, blech. Bad medicine. He didn't want to say it. And you know what? That's our problem. We don't mind saying, oh, nobody's perfect. This book is not talking about the fact that nobody's perfect. This book is talking about the fact that you, my friend, have sinned. Teach me. Not teach us. Not show other people. Teach me 
that I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. You will get nowhere with God pointing out the faults and the imperfections of other people because God ain't looking at anybody else, brother. He's looking at you. And he says, those who commit these sins are worthy of death. If a man has committed a sin that's worthy of death, and he be to be put to death. And I'll tell you this, my friend. God has decreed, and he will follow through on his word what he has said. Everyone who commits sin will die. And who wants to raise their hand this morning and say they never sin? I talked to a man one time at a door of his house, and we were talking. My friend and I, we were talking with him. My friend asked him. We read some verses from this very passage. And he said, do you see yourself? Do you see in this list that we have read in Romans 1 anything that you have ever done? Because all you have to do is do one of these things one time and you're guilty. You're on the list. (laughs) There's a lot more than that. But it takes some people work just to admit they've done one of those things once. Oh, this fellow, he just couldn't see it. He looked at the verses and he looked at us. He was just messing with our mind, you know. I mean, I think really down on the inside he knew. But you know how people are. They're just contrary. They don't want to say it. They don't want to let their arm be twisted. They don't want to give in. They don't want to. They're playing the game of checkers or chess with you. And they say, now if I say yes, if I move here, then he's going to move there. So they're playing with you. They're messing with you. And they're not going to say it. He said, no, I really, I've never done any of those things. And my friend, before I could say anything, I was really, I was just kind of, my mouth hung open, you know. You what? And my friend, just like that, he says, uh, could we ask your wife about that? <laughs> it was great. It just, uh, he just uh, got undone right there. He just came apart. That was the end of it. He knew he was caught. If we went and asked his wife if he ever did any of those things, we'd get the answer. So you're such a good person. You never did anything wrong. Or as we say in Spanish, nunca roto un plato. He never broke a plate. You never did anything wrong. Uh huh. You mind if I ask your mother or your father? You mind if I ask your friends? You mind if I ask your wife or your husband? I asked God, and He said you did. The Scripture says in Romans three and verse twenty-three: For all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. And you can't make that word any longer than a person from the south like me who can get two or three syllables out of it. All have sinned. (laughs) And you're in there. You're in there. You say, why do they always do this? Why do they always get on to this subject? What is it they have? Why, why do they obsess on this about pointing out people's flaws? And Why do they try to make us feel guilty? Now see, you don't get the picture yet. You don't get the picture. We're not trying to put anybody down. We're just trying to show you where the problem is so you can have the solution. Because you can't have the solution until you know what the problem is. And this is the problem. God says... That we have sinned. And he describes it. And not only here. Boy if we had time. But my old enemy the clock is against me. I could take you to Corinthians. I could take you to Galatians. I could take you to other verses in the scriptures that tell us. They go on and on. About how we have sinned. 
And the lists are there. And there's something in our heart that responds when we read those lists. And we know, whether we admit it or not to other people, we know that those lists in God's Word describe things that we have thought and said and done and not done. Failed to do. The wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. And you have two choices. You can believe it because God said it, or you can wait to find it out when it happens. And then it's going to be too late to correct it. And don't be like people when they learn that they've got cancer or some other problem and they go into denial. Don't try to get out of it by living in denial. Because you're not going to get anywhere in denial of this. All the symptoms are there. And the divine physician has examined and done the analysis. And here are the results of his analysis. And he says, you got the problem. You got the sickness. You got the disease. You have committed these. Coming back to the illustration that he's using here of crime, of deeds that are worthy of death. So we've committed sins that are worthy of death. We should be put to death. God demands it. The wages of sin is death. In the book of Revelation, he talks there about the great white throne where people's works will be brought out in the books of works and they'll be on the other side, a book of life. And he says they're going to look through those books and people are going to be judged by their works. And what do you think they're going to find? They're going to find what's in Romans 1. When they start looking through those books, they're going to find all of these things. They're going to find what's in Mark 7, 20 to 23, all of those sins and evil thoughts and everything else. They're going to find what's in Galatians 5. They're going to find what's in Romans, in 1 Corinthians 6. They're going to find all of these sins. Sins of thought, sins of attitude, sins of a mood, sins of words, sins of deeds, sins of things that should have been done that weren't done. They're going to find them all. All in those books of the works. Don't ever say you want to be judged by your works. You don't know what you're asking for. Because when all those books are open and God keeps careful records, all he has to do is find one sin to prove that you are a sinner. One sin. One thought. All he has to do to prove it is to find one in all those books. The wages of sin is death, my friend. It doesn't just mean physical death. When they put you in a casket, that's not the end. Before your body ever reaches the casket, your spirit will have left and gone and you will be standing before the eternal, holy, and righteous God. You're going to face Him in judgment. You, not your body, you. The second death. Not the physical death. The second death. When the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books are open and the dead were judged out of the books according to their works, according to the things that were written in those books. And whoever's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The undertaker can't help you with that one. And that's why Jesus went to the cross at Calvary. That's why when they put him on the cross, 
And, then, and not knowing what they were saying, those words that were over the cross said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. All the people that we know in the scriptures who were hung on a tree are kings. And Jesus Christ is my king. He took my place to represent me, even though he did no sin. The scripture says God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for me. To be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took all of our sins, all of the things that we have done that are worthy of death. Every thought, every word, every deed, every omission, everything that is wrong and ugly and impure and sinful. God took all of that like one huge mountain of guilt and wickedness and he laid it on the Lord. I'm not making this up. Peter says in his epistle, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. You got that? He bore our sins. That's what he was doing there. He was bearing your sins in his body on the tree. God said it. The apostles preached it. And everyone who is a true believer believes it. I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. He did that for me. Those were my sins he was carrying. He represented me. He's my king. He didn't die for his rebellion. He hadn't been a rebel. He died for my rebellion. He died for my sins. He took my place. The punishment for me. I did the sinning. And don't I know it. I did the sinning. Jesus did the dying. Can you say that this morning? Not we, all of us, nobody's perfect, etc., etc. Can you say would you be willing to say, to admit, to agree with God? Don't agree with me. Don't do it to please me. Agree with God. You're going to face him one day in judgment. You don't agree with him now. You're going to face him in judgment. You can agree with him now and go to him as your father. And never have to face that judgment. Because that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross at Calvary. He took the judgment. He took the penalty. The stroke. The blow. That was aimed at us. He got in the middle and he took it. It fell on him. He took it at Calvary. Would you be willing to say that this morning? I am the sinner. The sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. He did that for me. The law of the cross should be applied to me because I have committed sins worthy of death. I'm worthy of death. I'm not basically a good person. I am basically just what God says I am. I'm not going to lie and deceive and twist. I'm going to believe what God says. He says, this is me. These words that we read in Romans, they describe my heart. They describe my life. They describe me. And I'm going to look around and try to compare myself to other people because I can always fool myself by finding someone who's worse off than I am. And I can dream on that I live in a world where I'm not, maybe not as good as some people, but I'm not as bad as other people. And I live in this dream world that I have made up this comparative, relative world that has nothing to do with the law of God where God says all have sinned. And let me tell you something. You don't agree with that? 
You're going to face the judge and argue with him. I'm not going to argue with you about it. I'm telling you, this is what the judge says. All have sinned. You want to go argue with him? Isn't it a lot better just to believe him? Why does he tell us? He tells us because he wants us to understand what Christ did on the cross. He wants us not just to have warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. He wants us to understand what he was doing there. He was suffering for me. The law of the cross was being applied to him as my substitute. Christ has redeemed us. What does it say? I'm coming back to it to finish. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He did it for us as a substitute. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. I should have hung on that tree because I'm the sinner. But instead of me hanging there, instead of me having to die for my sins, Jesus died for me. And I thank God for the day that I understood that wonderful truth of what he was doing there. And I said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I'm placing my trust in you. I repent of my sin and I place all of my trust in you. You died for me. I believe in you. I trust you to forgive my sin and to give me a new life. Wouldn't you like to do that today? Wouldn't you like to escape having the law of the cross applied to you? Wouldn't you like to believe right now and trust that Jesus went to that cross for you? He took the curse and he suffered for you. Let's pray. And I'll invite you to pray also as we pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you this time that we have spent looking into your word. We know that you are a holy and a righteous God. We know that you will fulfill your word. It says the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. We also know that that seventh king, the Lord Jesus, he went to the cross for us. He hung there and he died. He was buried and he rose again. And he lives, he's seated at your right hand in heaven. And the scripture says he is able to save completely all who come to God by him. Lord, only you know who is here this morning who needs to come to you. That person that has never really confessed it before, I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. It was for me he bled and died. It was my guilt and my shame and my sins he suffered for at the cross. We pray that today will be that day. And they will enter in to the blessing of salvation and leave behind the curse of sin forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.